Welcome to Larry Reedy's America. This is my sixth podcast on Veterans Audio Journal. And today's guest is me. And the reason for that is uh, it's, it's getting cold here. I have a couple of guys lined up that I haven't been able to pinpoint a time yet. And there's a irritating factor that while I'm doing this in a Morton building, which is a basically perforated steel balls with a lot of panning, but as it gets cold, uh, the blower motor kicks on in the furnace. Like today, I got it up to 70 and I turn it down to 60. So hopefully it won't kick on because it gives this irritating sound during the podcast. But anyway, I, I, uh, if I get Reed Meyer and a couple other people on, uh, I will put my podcast back until, until they're on. I'd, I'd rather be the last one than come right in the middle of it. But I got a bad feeling about the, um, up-and-coming weather, and uh, this is, right now, I'm doing this on, uh, this is December the uh, 29th, and uh, this will air, if I don't get Reed and a couple other guys on first, this will air on February the 11th. So anyway, uh, one other thing before I start, uh, I did an introduction, basically, about my life a little bit on the uh, first podcast, which was uh, December of, or no, September of 2022, be the first episode, if you want to go back and listen. And I know a lot of the listeners have uh, bought my first book, which was My Quest for Life, Liberty, and Pursuit of Happiness from 1939 to 2019. So I don't want to be redundant, and we'll, I'm going to talk about, you know, going what led me to go into the service, uh, what I did in the service, how I came out, uh, which had a profound effect on my life. And uh, also, this is a little side note, if anyone is interested in this podcast, um, I have some of my first books left. Most of them are paperbacks. I think I've sold all the hardbacks or most of them. But um, anyway, I have that. And my second book, Batesville Shooter and and Friends, which is a gun review book and safety and how to protect your home such. But anyway, I'm at the age where... I'm not going to do any more book signings. Um, like the, if, if you go to a gun show uh, for my second book, I, I tried that once in 14 hours, stand on your feet for 14 hours. It, it's just not my bag at this age. So uh, anyone who wants uh, free books, uh, if you're local, I can dedicate and sign them, drop them off uh, while I'm in town at the uh, uh, Chamber of Commerce where you can pick them up. 
And if anybody wants them for a gift or something, I, I would have to charge you the, the freight to ship them. I ship medium, medium mail. And I can't remember most of the books I ship with the, the boxing and the freight, I think, was five five fifty. Uh, I don't know what it would be for two books because I I saw a couple out two books, but I don't remember what the price was. But that would be the only thing you have to pay. But in order to get free books, at the end of the podcast, I will give you a word, and you can either uh, send me an email at Larry Reading. Larry Reedy at Mac.com, or you can text me or call me at 812-871-4224, or you can leave a comment on my uh, homepage at Podbean. Uh, it would probably be better email and calling or texting for simple reason if you want to dedicate it and sign you can tell me how you how you want it dedicated. If it's the John and Jim, John and Susie Jones, or uh, uh, family, however you want it, I'll do it, sign it, and bring it in. And uh, uh, anyway, you might enjoy it. So let, let's get started here. I'm going to start when when I was in high school, when I was 16 years old. A couple of my buddies, well, more than a couple, about four or five of them, had already joined the National Guard. So they suggested to me that I join the National Guard. And I thought, well, back back in those days, um, if if you weren't in joining service or you weren't drafted yet, it, it was tough to get a job uh, out of high school, and I knew because of family situations I, I wasn't going to college. So anyway, I uh, figured I'd put my three years in, in active in reserve, and then I would join the Army for three years. That was my original thing, the reason I went into the National Guard. So anyway... When I went out to join the National Guard, I remember the uh, company commander, the uh, first sergeant brought me in and he gave me an interview and he said, and, and how old are you, uh, Mr. Reedy? And I said, I'm 16. And at that time he said, well, uh, uh, Sergeant Robinson, uh, take Larry outside and check his age. So I went outside the office and he said, uh, you're 17. So I walked back in and he said, uh, I forget, how old are you, Larry? So I'm 17, so that's perfect age. So anyway, joined the National Guard. One of the very, very smart decisions that I made in high school, uh, made, a, made a lot of mistakes in high school. But anyway, uh, I was in, it was called an Armor Recon Division. And we had tanks, and I, uh, I was a BAR man, Browning Automatic Rifle, and that thing weighed about 20 pounds, but it, it was fun to shoot. We, uh, 
and I also learned how to drive tanks. And when we'd go to Fort Knox two weeks out of the year, you'd qualify with different weapons. M1 was my primary weapon. And because uh, uh, everybody in the Army, their primary MOS is infantrymen. And I became an MP in the Army, but if there was ever a war, I could go right back to infantry. So anyway, after, after uh, high school graduation in uh, 1957, uh, two of my buddies, Will O'Neill and Jen Finley, we decided we'd all join the Army on the buddy plan. So we talked about it, and we had a going-away party with, uh, you know, we, we were all uh, either 18 or just about 18, and uh, we had a party at uh, the Blue Note in Price Hill, that's in Cincinnati, and we had so many people there. I mean, they ran out of barrels of beer and had to go borrow some from other restaurants, and uh, we had a good time. We had a group called Terry and the Pirates, the most popular rock and roll, rock and roll band around, uh, uh, and we were fortunate enough to get them, and they're their theme song, uh, young people aren't going to remember this, or was Bill Doggett's Honky Tonk, which is just incredible. So anyway, a uh, couple weeks later, Will and Jim said, hey, why don't we, why don't we wait, wait a year? Say, well, you know, go, or go, in, go in in the spring of 1958. And I thought, well... That might be fun, you know, instead of going in right away. So we waited till May of 58, and but when we joined, we all decided to sign up for armor, or, or I'm sorry, for uh, the uh, Army Security Agency, and they were located in Fort Devens. Well, we had to have top-secret clearance. They were checking school, neighbors, everything, to go to this, because uh, basically uh, you're probably going to be a cryptograph operator, which uh, uh, ba basically you're, you're tracking coded messages from Russia and places like that. So Will did not pass the test, and Jim decided we didn't— Jim decided to wait a couple months. He had something to go to, but he didn't realize that Will didn't pass the test. So Will and I joined on the buddy plan, and we went into uh, Army and signed up to be an MP. So uh, this, I'm going to have to shut my phone off because somebody's sending messages, and it's going right into my headset. It's driving me crazy. So... Anyway, to make a long story short, uh, we joined, and we were sent to Fort Knox for basic training. And my training platoon, my platoon sergeant, real regular Army platoon sergeant, uh, came up to me and, uh, when we uh, first arrived at Fort Knox, and he, uh, Will was in a separate. He was in a separate platoon. So he 
the uh, sergeant came up to me and he said, uh, you did three, I see you did three years in the National Guard, so you're going to be acting platoon sergeant and under my supervision, and uh, you're going to march troops, you're going to do everything. But he said, if you screw up once, you're done. He says, no, no come back on this. I said, okay. I said, fine. I said, uh, what's your name, Sergeant? Sergeant York. I said, really, what's your first name? He said, Alvin. <laughs> and I said, are you shitting me? You're named after a Medal of Honor winner and one of the most decorated soldiers of World War One, And his subtle reply was, uh, no relationship. So as we were going to Fort Knox, as somebody else had must read my records in any way, they, they asked me to try out for the Fort Knox baseball team. Uh, I was a pitcher. I made the team, but I, I said, no, I said, I'll tell you what, I, after thinking twice about it, uh, I didn't join the Army to play baseball. And I really liked this gig of being acting platoon sergeant. So anyway, I, I didn't do that. So uh, my second week of basic, uh, Sergeant York, he told me to report to some captain at administration building. I can't remember his name. And the captain asked me to take a two-and-a-half-hour test for officer candidate school. I took the test, passed it, and I was interviewed by two other captains. <clears throat> I was interested until I got down to the details. The deal was take my advanced basic, which was MP school, go to officer's candidate school, go to ranger school, and upon completion, be commissioned as a second lieutenant. <clears throat> and uh, I mentioned that I would take over a year, that would take over a year, and leave less than two years on my enlistment. Well, that, that's not how it worked. My three-year enlistment would start all over, and as an officer, I would be subject to recall until I was too old to be of any value to the Army. I thanked them for their consideration and explained that I was not planning on making the Army my career. My third week in basic training, I contracted strep throat, which is terrible, running heavy fevers, very contagious. In fact, in the barracks on all the bunks, we had to put up shelter halves so you couldn't be breathing where, where the, the virus would be picked up in the air. And I mean, I was just sicker than a dog, so I... I toughed it out. I marched a platoon every day to various classes. By the time we got back to the barracks, I passed out on my bed. Uh, and during my recuperations, one of the guys would clean my rifle. Uh, and by the time, well, he'd clean my rifle and another one would wake me up, give me some food that he brought back from the mess hall. Then a couple of them would help me in the shower in the morning. So that went on until the third day when my fever broke and everything went back to normal. I, I didn't know Sergeant York was aware of my illness until he told me he wanted to see what I was made of. He said if he was ever in combat again, 
that he would want me by his side. And to me, that was a real honor for and an, the ultimate compliment from an Army veteran who fought in Korea. Uh, one of the funny things that took place, basic training, it was really hot. This, this would have been sometime in June. And we were playing war games and bivouacking in the field. And for some reason, after we were had our crappy food for the night, uh, the portable showers didn't show up. So, you know, you're out eight hours, really hot, these heavy fatigues, sweaty, smelly. And it, I, I mean, I just reeked. So we had these two-man tents and a rain shower came down, pretty good rain shower. So I thought, hell, I'm, I got to go get a shower. So I, I stripped, got a bar of soap, started taking a shower. And York said, he said, Brady, what the hell are you doing? I said, I'm taking a shower because I can't stand my own stink. All the tents emptied out, bunch of naked GIs taking a shower, and York just stood there shaking his head. And I, said, I told him, I said, hey, by the way, Sarge, you stink too. So he started laughing, went to his tent, stripped, and joined us taking a shower. Uh, and as uh, I think it was maybe the fifth, maybe the fifth week at Fort Knox, uh, they had an annual competition for the best drill team on the post. The drill team competition was a big deal. The post commander did the judging. At the end of the, each day for the week, I drilled my platoon every day for an hour. Everyone volunteered for this. When the big day came, there must have been 50 or more platoons reviewed, and we won the trophy. So I got a three-day pass that was good for 50 miles, and naturally I hitchhiked outside of the 50 miles. I get a ride to Louisville and then get another ride to Cincinnati and uh, I figured if I didn't if I didn't get into any trouble, it, it wouldn't be a problem. Uh, our last day of basic training was pretty exciting. There are four platoons in the company, and an extra marine by the name of Webb, who really he had really hit his act together. Well, he and I had to compete in marching and drill exercises. The winner would get a letter from the company and the post commander, a letter of recommendation. After an hour of really scorching, humid weather, we had a 10-minute break. Uh, we both performed flawlessly for the first hour. Uh, right before we resumed, Sergeant York fixed my hat, and 10 minutes later, it fell off my head. So Webb got the best soldier from our company. Uh, Sergeant York was really distraught that he fixed my hat, but I told him that Webb, after eight years in the Marine, deserved it, and he really was the best of the best. Uh, and a uh, couple other things, and we're going to leave basic training. One of the really nice guys in my platoon, his name was Dowdy. He was a quiet, decent guy, and everybody liked him except one asshole 
who was always trying to put him down. I can't remember his name, so I'm going to just continue to call him asshole. Uh, we uh, had an athletic field close to our barracks, and building housed house all kind of athletic equipment. And this is uh, before we did our drill competition. Uh, my, uh, my, after my platoon got done practicing, asshole came up and asked Dowdy if he liked to box a couple rounds, and he said it would take it easy on him. Downey was about 5'6 to 5'7, weighed maybe 150 pounds. Asshole was 6'6'1, weighed about 190 pounds. So Downey agreed, and they put on the headgear, and I laced up Downey's gloves, and somebody else was lacing up the asshole's gloves. I said I would time the three-minute rounds, and Downey looked at me and told me it wouldn't be necessary. So the asshole come out throwing wild punches, and Downey just effortlessly blocked or ducked him. And when it became apparent that his opponent couldn't lay a glove on him, Downey smiled, set his weight, slammed the blow to asshole's kidneys, and he followed with a right cross, knocked him out, but caught him before he hit the ground. Downey walked over to me, so I kind of laced his gloves, and he saw this bewildered expression on my face. And then he explained that he was a Golden Glove champion in his weight class with 150 amateur fights under his belt. So later the asshole apologized to Dowdy, and I think the humiliation of that little uh, boxing match might have turned his life around. And after that fiasco was over, buddy of mine, Mark Woosley, who did decide to play baseball for Fort Knox, a uh, good third baseman, and another just terrific guy. He asked if I wanted to go a few rounds. I said, sure, we, we'll start, we start sparring. And I, I was pretty quick, and I, I rocked him a couple times in the first round. Uh, he threw very few punches. Uh, halfway through the second round, I had a hard time keeping my hands up because you know, if you're not boxing all the time and training, your arms get pretty heavy, especially if you're throwing a lot of punches. So Mark then just kicked my ass. I, I couldn't wait for the round to end. And afterwards, he said, uh, he said that's enough. He said, uh, I, I didn't tell you I was on a college boxing team. And he said, I know you're really in good physical condition but it has nothing to do with boxing condition. So what he did, he saved his energy until he saw my hands dropping. Then he just started knocking the hell out of me. So, so many good people, not only in the platoon, but the entire company. And it was tough to say goodbye with me and my buddy. The only one going down peace school was me and my buddy Will. So after two weeks leave, went to Fort Gordon, Georgia to start MP school. Uh, training was great. Besides police training, we had lessons on our primary weapon, the Colt 1911 45 ACP. At first, I thought I would probably never qualify on a range. After plenty of practice, I became very comfortable with the 1911. And uh, you, can, you get three medals for shooting. 
one is lowest metals marksman, the next is sharpshooter, then expert. I qualified for sharpshooter, but I was able, never able to shoot expert, and I had to qualify at my duty station in the canal zone. Uh, third week in MP school, uh, Will, John Thorne, and myself were going to a, a late mass on Sunday, and Will couldn't get out of his bunk. He so sick, he couldn't walk. Uh, we took him to the dispensary, and he had lymphagitis, was hospitalized, and was recycled. So he graduated a week behind us. Um, we had a couple weekend passes. One was in Augusta, Georgia, Will John and myself. We got really, we got really drunk. And uh, I cannot write anything more about my not so good moments because um, my, my, my kids and grandkids don't need to know anything about that. So anyway, when we graduated from school, uh, my MOS, which is Military Occupational Specialties, was 951, which means job description. Uh, it was, I'm a service policeman, just like a city cop. Uh, four of us out of 48 got the, 19, the 951 MOSs. The rest of the company either received security card, guard or combat MP designations. Uh, I, I wanted to go airborne. I've always wanted to jump out of a plane. So I had to get an up-to-date physical to include an eye test. At, at that time, uh, I needed a dog without my glasses, so I, I memorized the eye chart, and I passed with a 2015 vision. My next step was having my lenses refracted because they had my driver's license, that I wore glasses. So the guy that did the refraction said, hey, this is really impossible. I said, you, you can't even see the E on the, on the chart. I said, what? I want to go airborne. I said, what do you care? He says, you're right. What do I care? He said, he said anybody's dumb enough to jump out of a perfectly good airplane? He said, just go for it. So next stop, Fort Campbell. Uh, when I arrived at Fort Campbell, Kentucky, which was home of the 101st Airborne Division, it was really cold. I checked into the barracks. Uh, next day, I went to the MP company to be interviewed for, and the Airborne MP company to be interviewed uh, for a position there. As soon as I walked in, the captain looked at me and he said, you're too short. I said, I'm too short for what? He says, he said, well, how tall are you? I said, I'm six feet tall. He said, well, our basketball team, you're too short. Up. I want you to go to the infantry company until baseball season, and then I re will request your transfer. And Well, at that time of year at Fort Campbell, you're 101st Airborne. Uh, you're bivouacking. You're living in tents out in the cold weather. And I just left Fort Gordon, Georgia, and I had no intention of that. So I said, I told him, I said, Captain, I have no intention of going to infantry. And he said to me, he said, do you want to be an airborne MP or a leg MP? And I told him, I said, 
send me the leg MP company. I can always jump out of a airplane. And his remark was, get your ass out of here. So I wasn't sure, but I guess that meant the interview was over. Uh, that afternoon, I reported the leg MP company, enjoyed my time at Fort Campbell, uh, great work. And after I was settled with my assigned bunk, I had the day off, so I went to the main, AP, main PX on post. And as soon as I walked in the door, I heard somebody say, hey, Red, it was a Price Hill buddy of mine by the name of Jack Turner. Jack introduced me to Ron Bamberger, and Ron and I are still friends. We talk a couple times every year, and we visit each other's home. He's from uh, originally from New York City, and they him at home in Florida. So uh, I was stationed at Fort Campbell, I think it was the end of September until December of 58. Great experiences. Um, these uh, these events, they happened 60-some years ago and transferred a 19-year-old kid into a responsible young adult. Uh, one day, Bamberger, Turner, and I were walking past the dispensary, and we saw smoke. Turner called the fire department. Bamberger found a fire extinguisher, and I was helping patients to evacuate the building. Uh, we seized a congratulatory letter, I should say, from the office of post commander, uh, General William Westmoreland, and our company commander. Uh, and a good friend of ours I met through Bamberger's name was uh, Manny Manuel Ibera. We call him Manny. He's from Guadalajara, Mexico. Nice guy. And he's kind of a sweet-talking ladies' man, you might say. Years later, there was a drug kingpin in Guadalajara arrested for killing a DEA, DEA agent. His name was Manuel Ibera, and he looked a lot like our friend at the and the age was right. I hope it wasn't Manny. He was a great guy when I knew him. Uh, I was very fortunate at work. I usually worked post patrol or town patrol in Hopkinsville, Kentucky, or Clarksville, Tennessee. And uh, this, this is <laughs> this is an interesting little story. Uh, one night I was working the main gate at Fort Campbell with an airborne MP. And the size of Fort Campbell and the traffic dictated you needed two MPs at a gate, and this was the main entrance. This night we hit a little action. The bus stopped at the gate, returning from Hopkinsville, and the driver said there's a guy sitting in the back and was so drunk that no one could wake him up. So I boarded the bus. I found one of the biggest Indians that I've ever seen in my life. I tried to wake him to no avail. And I, so I, I put a pencil between, between his two fingers and I start grinding away. And if, if you want to try it, do it sometime, the pain's, it's excruciating. And his eyes popped open. I said, come on, follow me and I'll get your ride and take, take you back to the barracks. I got off the bus, but he followed me, but as the Indian came out of the door of the bus, he hit my MP partner, knocking him down. I, I slammed him. I hit him in the shins with my nightstick, and my partner came to his feet, and, and he joined in, and 
helping me subdue the monster with handcuffs. Called the desk sergeant, asked him to have Senate Post Patrol out. So we sent the Indian to his barrack because we don't want to do any paperwork, even though we could have charged him with assault and battery. Uh, my partner asked me, he said, uh, what, what did you do to him? I said, I said, I didn't do anything. He probably took one look at you and decided that you were an asshole. And I, I will not repeat what he said to me. Uh, another incident, a good friend of mine at Fort Campbell was Bill Reed. And we were in the same squad, and we worked nine days on, three days off. And one day he asked me if I wanted to earn some extra money when we were off duty. Well, I could always use extra money because back then they didn't pay anything in the service. So Bill, I told him it depends. And Bill was 22 or 23 year old. He was drafted. And he told me he'd been running moonshine since he was 17. He had an 80 mile run, got paid $150 on his two off days netting $300 tax-free. I told Bill thanks, but I didn't, didn't think I wanted to take a chance on going to jail and getting a dishonorable discharge. So uh, the first part of November, uh, I, my first sergeant asked me if I would temporarily be the mail clerk because his... Uh, the regular mail clerk, who's kind of a career guy, he had a, a fatal illness in the family and had emergency leave. So I did this for a couple of weeks till he came back, and uh, it was a pain. But, I mean, it was okay. It was a cr easy job, but I didn't like it. And uh, I, I met a guy at a bar that worked at headquarters company, and he took care of filling overseas transfers. And I, I asked him to get me an assignment to Germany, and he just left. He said, everyone wants to go to Germany. He said, the only thing that's open for transfer is South Korea. I said, well, go ahead and send me to South Korea. So a few days later, my first sergeant, Vargas, great guy, class act as a soldier, asked me to stop by his, his, his uh, office. And I've never heard the guy raise his voice or curse before I'm meeting. And he started by shouting at me, Reedy, are you out of your effing mind? South Korea is the biggest shithole in the world. I informed him I wanted to go somewhere overseas for two years. He tore up my orders, told me I was too good of a soldier to go to Korea, and he'd find a better choice for me. He called me in his office in December, shook my hand and wished me luck in the Panama Canal Zone. And I, I, I forgot about, I, I just, quick remarks, there was four guys in the company, they were just crazy. Uh, one guy's name was Lee, he was a black belt karate guy, Walters was a weightlifter, Vashon was a, just an army guy, I don't know how many times he's been busted, but they were always in trouble for fighting. Alex Kroll was a scholar, a football player, and I don't know why he ran around with him, but he stayed out of the bars. And uh, one night on post patrol, I was with Corporal Alverson, and we stopped to get something in the provost marshal office. And while we were there, the desk sergeant received a call from Vashon telling him that there was a fight in progress at a bar on the post. Uh, 
he asked Vashon how long the brawl had been going on. Vashon yelled to Lee and said, how long has the fight been in progress? He said, it will start as soon as I finish my beer. Yeah, crazy guys. So, but Alex Kroll, he was a sophomore at Yale on an academic scholarship and on the football team. Uh, he was expelled for having a physical argument with an associate professor, lost his deferment, and Alex was in the Army, spent two years at Fort Campbell in my company, uh, played on, obviously, Fort Campbell's football team. After his service, uh, went to Rutgers University, captained the undefeated football team, was a unanimous All-American, and received his undergraduate degree. Uh, Alex worked for Young and Rubicon as an advertising trainee in 62, rose to CEO in 85, and during his 10 years as CEO, uh, he increased two and a half times the business to $8 million, class act. Okay, then I had two weeks leave before going to the canal zone. When I was on uh, leave, I had two dates with the future love of my life, Nancy Cahill. And our second date was New Year's Eve. I can't remember if I had to leave New Year's Day or the 2nd of January to Fort Dix. Nancy said she would write. I told her I'd write back. So Fort Dix, my trip to the Canal Zone was quite an experience. Uh, got a barren consignment uh, for the ship going to the Canal Zone. And after completing my paperwork, I went to the mess hall for lunch, was eating, mess, eating and the mess sergeant stopped by on my table and told me to round up 10 guys for KP duty. And I reported to him and report to him at three o'clock. <clears throat> I told him I wasn't stationed here and will be leaving for Canal Zone tomorrow the day after. Told me he didn't care and make sure I was there precisely three o'clock. I, I said, okay, well, that never happened. I didn't have a name tag. The guy didn't have any idea of my barracks. So I went to a movie in a different mess hall. Uh, trip to the canal zone was interesting, a little crazy. If you haven't seen a troop ship, they're enormous and quite high. I was one of three MPs on the ship and I had to work. I was assigned to the top deck. Had to make sure that families were going to canal zone were safe and the children were not doing anything to put them in harm's way. Uh, beautiful day turned into a really rough night. The sea was rough. The water was coming over the bow and spraying the deck. And I had to stay until 11 p.m. working. And then my day was over. So I started to go below to find a bunk. And, but I'll tell you, the, the stench, stench was just so putrid. I, I just couldn't do it. So... I walked to the Navy mess hall on the top deck. Uh, there were five or six sailors at the table inviting me to join them. They had steak and potatoes, and they stashed. They had some Heineken stash, so I had two bottles of Heineken. Uh, after spending a couple hours with them, I asked for a favor. I borrowed a rope and a sailor to tie me to a deck chair on the open deck. 
I slept like a baby while the sea roared. I was soaking wet when I woke up, but the sun woke me up and the sea was calm. I went to shower and changed clothes, but the stink was so bad. And the troops birthing, I just got my duffel bag and took a shower with the, the sailors' uh, shower room. So after shower and breakfast, it was back to work. We dropped anchor at Guantanamo Bay. And everyone on deck was watching the kids swimming, diving for coins, and troops were dropping and the troops were dropping money into the bay. I walked the entire top deck and this idiot said, uh, AMP, come here. I walked over and asked what he wanted and he said, I'm, I'm gonna dive off the ship. And I told him, I don't give a shit, what do you do? So a couple minutes later, he jumped off the top deck and he started diving for coins. The sirens went off. I'm running down to get him out of the water. And when I finally got to the ramp, the ship's captain was already there and asked me if I know what possessed this moron to dive off the boat. I said, I had no idea. And we'd get him out of the water and take him to the brig. I told him to get out of the water and he told me to come and get him. I explained to him that if he didn't come out, instead of spending the rest of the trip in the brig, he would get a court-martial and possibly be a conduct discharge. And I also informed him uh, when, if he didn't get out, when I asked him in a nice way that I might be working town patrol while he's in the infantry and he might have a bad day in, in, in uh, downtown Cologne. So I put handcuffs on him and took him to the brig. Rest of the trip was relaxing. A uh, few, few facts about Panama that I remember. I think the average temperature was 74 to 86 degrees. Two seasons, rainy and dry, and it's 52 miles from the Atlantic to the Pacific. So, uh, and, and the Panama, they didn't have a real middle class that was either rich or poor to be the status of about 90% of the population. Uh, spent two years in Panama, life-changing experience for me. I made lifelong friends. I'm still in touch with well, one buddy who just died, so I'm still in touch with three guys on Facebook. Uh, in fact, a buddy of mine lives in Maine. I haven't seen him since February of 61. We've been in touch for, for years, and. Uh, he called me today and we spoke on the phone for 45 minutes. He lives in Maine. Uh, I, first week I got settled and I met Sid Nowinski, who became a lifelong friend. He died earlier this year. And was uh, I was best man in his wedding and he was in my wedding. Uh, Sid taught me getting into baseball shape. So tried out, made Army Atlantic, played baseball for two seasons. And uh, while we were playing baseball, we were TDY, in other words, temporary duty. So three months a year, I was TDY, living in the 40, 549th MP company. My roommate was my buddy, Ski, and we actually didn't have to work. We just played baseball and practice. So uh, one morning, our first Sergeant Krimmel came <laughs> into the room and asked, why we weren't ready for the inspection by the post commander. And I said, well, we're technically 
not attached to the MP company. And we we had a tough game the night before and had too many beers after the game. He told us to take a shower, get dressed, lock our door, and spend a few hours at the PX. At the PX. I, uh, I told him we're broke. We just can't sit at the PX for a few hours. So he asked how much money it would take to get rid of you two assholes uh, for a few hours. I, I told him five bucks would do the trick. He handed me five dollars and left shaking his head. It was just an act because he really liked us. Uh, we usually played two or three games a week. Uh, if we weren't playing for Army Atlantic and uh, Cocosola Naval Base had a baseball team, uh, we, we played a few games with them. And if they didn't have a game, and we'd play a few games on our company's fast-pitch softball team. So it was a good time, but, you know, it was... uh, uh, It it, it wasn't work, but, you know, you really got in good physical shape. Uh, One of the things that I really remember is we also had a flag football team, company flag football team. And I, in flags, the receivers, anybody in the backfield wears two flags around their waist. And usually if you're playing in dry weather, the flags are flopping in the breeze and you grab the flags and that's like tackling. Well, we always playing when it was rainy and muddy and I'd, and the receivers my I played quarterback and I'd slap mud on my legs and and so basically for somebody to stop me or any of the receivers they got tackling and we didn't have any uh we didn't have any equipment and by the way the buddy of mine that I talked to today, Ron Bruce he was uh six three and he I guess he went about two hundred and twenty, two hundred and thirty pounds and uh I think uh, in our first, I can't remember if it was first or second season, uh, but he broke his collarbone because he was a lineman, and they're just, you know, you get big guys hitting each other without without uh, pads. It's pretty rough. So any, anyway, we uh, actually we had a really good team because my my buddy Bob Whedon, who was a tight end. And Bob played for UCLA, but for some reason, he I, I ne- he never really told me. He either lost the scholarship or he couldn't pay for it. And anyway, he got drafted. So he was an MP, and Bob's, a, Bob's just a great guy. But a- anyway, we played two years. We played 16 games. We won 15 and tied one because the we not only hit a— storm but it was really lightning and we had to get off the field so uh, anyway but Bob Bob turned out to be one of my best friends and uh, one night you know Bob's about he's 6'2 or 6'3 and he's maybe 230 pounds I don't think he had any body fat I was 6 feet and I weighed at that time 185 to 190 pounds so he Talked me into sparring with him because he didn't want to work on his defense. So I got in the ring, put the headgear and gloves on, and I was safe. I had quick hands on. Um, 
hit Bob when I wanted to. Like I thought so anyway. And uh, so I was moving around. I was jamming and hooking him. And, and all of a sudden, I saw this big right hand coming over the top to put me to sleep. And I remember thinking, oh, shit. Bob tapped me on top of the head and told me he could hit me anytime he wanted to. I told him to find a new sparring partner. Uh, next, another event with Bob. We were, I was on town patrol with a Panamanian policeman who's a great guy and I worked with him on several occasions. His name was Ralph and eventually through myself and several other people with our recommendations, uh, we got him to get in the ar got him to join the army, which was a big pay increase because he had actually farmed out three of his kids to his brother, who was a farmer, and lived in the country, couldn't afford to pay him to pay for him. Uh, this one night we were checking nightclubs on one of the off limit streets, and to army and navy personnel, but. Ski and I just go there a lot because there was a great, uh, great jazz organist. Uh, so anyway, we were in here, and uh, this this uh, owner of the nightclub comes up, and he said, "I got a problem with this drunk, and he's loud. He's disturbing people, and he said, I think he's a GI, but he won't. He's talking Spanish, and I." He, I don't, he said, I, I don't know what to do with him. Well, see, I'm, I'm the only white guy in the place. And Ralph uh, went up to him, and he wouldn't answer me, so Ralph's talked to him in Spanish. And while Ralph's talking to this idiot, I noticed that the guys in the club, they kind of formed a circle around us. And uh, Ralph asked me if I had any ideas what we should do. I said, I, I don't have a clue. But if we're going to get our ass kicked, I'm going to kick this idiot's ass first. And then all of a sudden, Bob Whedon comes through the circle, stands in front of me, tells him, this is my buddy, just sit your ass down or we're going to have, they're going to have to deal with me. He said, you deal with me. So everybody, he was a very imposing figure. Everybody went back to their seats. We handcuffed the guy. Ray Cox, our jazz organist, starts playing Manhattan. Uh, Bob tells the idiot not to give us a problem where he will have a lengthy recovery time in the hospital. We thank Bob, wave goodbye to Ray, and hold the drunk to jail. And uh, Ralph and I shared several uh, unique experiences. Uh, one was during the Cuban Missile Crisis, sailors had liberty, and we were instructed. They were supposed to be back on a ship at 1 o'clock. They said, if they get back at 2 o'clock, it'll be okay. So one night, Ralph and I are on time, town patrol. 12, about 12.45, we stopped by nightclubs, told the sailors last call for a drink was at 1 o'clock. And one of the real popular nightclubs. And I, I knew all the owners of the nightclub because it, it's it's best to get on their good side because by the 15th of the month I was broke and I had no problem with them buying me a beer. So uh, we had a big problem at the Copacabana that night. There were eight or 10 sailors 
they were all drunk. But the one guy, he was an Indian who's bigger than Bob Whedon, and he was really drunk. When I told him it was last call, this Neanderthal said he wanted to see me make him leave. I told him to relax, enjoy his drink, and we'd be back 15 minutes. And he said, I'll be waiting for you. And so we were stopping at, at the other nightclubs. Ralph was really getting nervous. And uh, I said, don't, don't worry, we got this. He asked if I was crazy or if I just wanted Tano to kick both of our asses. I already had a plan, but I couldn't resist messing with Ralph. So I told him, if things just get, start getting really bad, just shoot him. He told me that I had mental problems, and we both started laughing. Uh, we stepped into Copacabana, and the big guy had this, I'm drunk out of my mind, smile, waiting to put us both in the hospital. But uh, most of the sailors were probably 19 to, uh, to 25 years old. And uh, but one looked like being in his mid-30s, so I walked over to him. I said, uh, Chief, how long have you been in the Navy? He said it was approaching 15 years. I informed him if he didn't get that drunk asshole and the rest of his crew in cabs, Ralph's going to arrest him for inciting a riot and the rest of the drunk for public intoxication. I informed him that they would spend the rest of the weekend in a Panamanian jail while their ship went to sea. He didn't reply, got everybody in cabs. They called us every foul name that they could think of. Oh, my... Uh, my uh, fan just kicked on even though I got it down to 60. So you're hearing this irritating noise in the background, but I can't freeze. So anyway, I could go on about the canal zone for years, but uh, and you know Nancy and I exchanged letters, and for some reason I've stopped. I was busy playing baseball, drinking, and doing all the crazy things then, but. She'd sent me a congratulations letter from my future best man in the wedding is, was Jim McCarthy. He told her that I married a Panamanian girl who was black. I had received a congratulatory letter from Nancy, and we start writing again. I told him Mac was an asshole. So, uh, and I don't know, I can't remember what time of the year this was, but. In Panama, they had a big three-day celebration. And in case of trouble, the MP company formed a perimeter around the canals and it set a, separated Cristobal and Colon. Cristobal was in the canals and Colon was the you know, Atlantic side of Panama, uh, downtown for this festival. So we worked four hours on and two hours off for three days. The second year, the Provost Marshal, uh, Duke Keeneland, Major Keeneland, told me he expected riots the next day and during the parade. He told me if trouble started that I should take my squad, fix bayonets on our riot-type shotguns, form a wedge, but don't shoot anyone. He said the rest of the MPs will fall back to Front Street and the infantry would come to our aid. I said, I asked him, I said, now I just want to be sure what you're telling me. 
you want my squad to disperse a thousand or more crazy drunks, not shoot anyone because the infantry in full combat girl for gear that's three blocks away is going to save our ass. He said, you got it. Fortunately, nothing happened. Uh, during my second year, I went home on leave for 30 days, spent all my time, or most of my time, with Nancy when she was at nursing school with good Sam. And I knew eventually I would ask Nancy to marry me. So I returned to the canal zone. Terrible experience. Uh, leading up to it, we had an arrogant second lieutenant who was hung with the nickname of Baby Huey because of his physical stature. And none of us won him on our football team, so I put him on his ass with a block. And I said, are you okay, Huey? You could say anything on an athletic field rank, he had no privilege. So he never came back to our team, but I knew someday we were, he'd try to get even with me. When our company commander was promoted to major, the Army transferred to Washington, D.C., and Huey became the uh, acting commander until a new replacement came in. A uh, couple of weeks later, there was a shouting match between a buddy of mine, a career soldier, and a family man, Bill Elliott, and a guy named Craddock. Craddock was a high school wrestling champ with Dumber in a box of rocks. One thing led to another, and they wound up getting in a fight that evening. I tried to talk Elliot out of it. I told him, I said, Craddock's going to kick your ass. Just let it go. So he went, and when it started, uh, I mean, Elliot was really overmatched. Craddock was, I mean, he was a handful. So suddenly, Elliot flipped open a little pocket knife and jabs at Craddock with the knife. Craddock drops his guard, and Elliot got a couple good hits on him. And Craddock tried to grab Elliot's wrist to take the knife away, and Elliot, causing Elliot to raise his hand and accidentally slice Craddock's bicep, and then, I mean, a big hunk of meat was hanging out of it. Everyone was watching, just stood around, I, and I just said, somebody take Craddock to the dispensary. Elliot, you asshole, get rid of that knife. Another buddy of mine saw and grabbed Elliot's wrist, took the knife out of his hand, not thinking, probably threw the knife probably 20 yards. So next morning, Saul, Saul and I were told to report to Hendricks, uh, who was CID Criminal Investigation Division. Hendricks informed us that Elliot told him, Elliot told him everything, and CID wanted to talk to witnesses. So we found out our buddy Elliot was getting a court martial, a general court martial, which is really bad. But we were shocked to learn that Sullivan and I were getting a special court martial for being an accessory after the fact for trying to hide a knife. And I'm sure Baby Huey instigated this railroading because he wanted to get back at me. I contacted a brilliant a career Army lawyer who was attached to the agent, agent general's office. And uh, uh, Berger was a friend of mine who I bowled with once a week on our company bowling team. Two weeks before our trial, director directive was sent out, 
to Berger informing him that he was only allowed to defend general court marshals. Since our court was only a special, we could not act in our defense. We were assigned a Puerto Rican captain who had no legal background, never seen a court martial. The captain intended to ramble and talk very fast, and the faster he spoke, the worse his Spanish accent became. I sat down with Berger, gave him our defense counsel's name. Berger prepared our case, sat in the courtroom, gave signals to the captain, 30 minutes in the trial. Berger pulled on his ear, signaling the captain to stand up, and asked the judge to drop the Smith charge. They agreed to miss, dismissing us, but our buddy Elliot received a two-year sentence in Leavenworth and a dishonorable discharge. About an hour after the trial, I was in the day room where guys were congratulating us. The first sergeant came out smiling to shake our hands, but he got serious and told me that Lieutenant Heck, Baby Huey, wanted to see me in his office. Walked into his office, saluted, stood at attention, told me to relax and inform me that he thought we were guilty as hell and therefore I was not getting my job back as patrol supervisor or desk sergeant. And furthermore, he was assigned me to permanent town patrol, hoping that I would get my ass kicked. And uh, Huey then asked me if I had anything to say. I told him I can't respond, you're an officer, and I'm not in a position to respond. He said, forget the rank, say what's on your mind, and we'll stay in this office without any repercussions. Well, in that case, you're an effing idiot. Sorry excuse for an officer, and I'll be happy when a real company commander gets here in two weeks. His fat face turned red and screamed at me to get out of his office, spitting all over his desk. When I got to the day room, the first sergeant told me with a big smile on his face that he heard everything and if Heck tried to go back on his word, uh, that he, uh, you know, to get me arrested for insubordination, he said he would be a witness against him. So two weeks later, my new friend, Captain Vordy, arrived. He got a battlefield commission. He was a master sergeant during the Korean War when he received his commission. He's from, he's from Hawaii, short, excellent physical condition, smart. And first night he was duty officer, he asked for me to be his driver. Went downtown, showed him all nightclubs, and he asked me what I thought of Lieutenant Heck. I told him, couldn't come and he replied that he said, hey, this, we're not talking as an officer or listen, man. We're just talking as two good, two guys hanging out and shooting the bull. So I told him, in my opinion, that Heck was a moron who would probably die from friendly fire if he ever led a platoon or company in combat. He kind of left and I said, yeah, top, the first sergeant already filled him in. So, anyway, we'll go on, but eventually, uh, Heck wound up in uh, infantry. He was kicked out of the company, sent to the uh, provost marshal office, back to the mess hall, this uh, uh, lieutenant in the mess hall, and then sent to infantry. Uh, anyway, 
I had a few months remaining on my on my enlistment, so I talked to Captain Twardy and I told him I would like to attend a jungle warfare training class. And I can't remember, it's either four or six weeks where they you attend class for the most part, and the last week you're, you know, you learn about what are the really bad poison snakes and uh, how you can recognize them and how you can survive by eating certain plants and not getting poison. And, uh, and what they do, they drop you in a jungle with a canteen of water and some pills to make any water that you find drinkable, uh, a knife, a live chicken, and a compass. And you had to make your way back through the jungle. And well, I shouldn't say a knife. It was a knife, plus they gave you a machete to cut through the, the, the tropics. So anyway, when I mentioned that to Captain Dwarty, he asked if I had malaria or some other tropical disease affecting my brain. I said, no, I want to do it. So a few days later, uh, Sergeant Crimmel top said, hey, Reedy, you have a phone call. So I thought something terrible happened at home. But when I answered the phone, I was shocked to hear, Reedy, this is Colonel, I can't remember his last name, the post commander. And he said he just wanted to inform me if I wanted to go to Jungle Warfare Training Center, he couldn't stop me. But the day I graduated from that, he, he said, you're going to go to Korea. He said, if you, he said, if you're not TDY for baseball and you're on now on opening day, you're going to Korea. So I didn't get my Jungle Warfare Training badge. And a couple other little things, and then we're going to get out of it. Um, one day I was we were playing baseball and, and first sergeant called me in and said, Hey, I got a job for you. I said, I, hey Top, I'm not working, I'm playing baseball. He said, No, you'll like this. He said, Get Pat Walker because you're gonna do a skit on Bob Hope's Christmas show and also provide for security for Bob Hope's troop. So it was Bob young people aren't gonna remember this, but Bob Hope. Janice Page, Jerry Colonna, Les Brown, they were great guys. Andy Williams was a prick. He just, uh, I don't like him. And uh, a great singer, but just a lousy personality. So, and everybody called Bob Hope Ace. But it, uh, what happened, there was a mix-up. They, they did a show on the Pacific side. Two MPs came over. So we hung around backstage and... That never never performed in the skip, which was okay with me. But uh, and then when it was time for discharge, you had to have three talks: two by the company commander, company commander first, then the first sergeant, then company commander. So Captain Jordy was really serious about trying to get me to reenlist. He said, you know, he said, Rank's been frozen MP for seven years. It's opening up. He said, if you reenlist, stay down here for another three years. He said, you'll, you'll be a, uh, you'll be a sergeant first, uh, sergeant first, no, you'll be a staff sergeant, he said, in uh, about three weeks. 
after your reenlistment. He said, then I'll send you over to Fort Clayton on the Pacific side and the MP company. I've already, he said, I've already talked to company commander. Stay there six months. He said, I've got a guy retiring here after 30 years. And he told me, Sergeant Cranford, he said, so be a sergeant first class up up. He said, you'll be the, one of the youngest people to ever be a sergeant first class in, you know, which is an E6. He said, in peacetime. And he says, especially in MP. And I said, I thank you. I said, but uh, he's, and he knew, I, I told him earlier, I said, I'm, if I get, get a job, make some money, I said, I'm uh, he asked uh, Nancy to bury me, and he said, why, why don't you talk to Nancy first? I said, nah, I, said, I don't think so. <laughs> I said, I, I, I really liked the Army. I had a great time. Uh, but I said, you know, we've got relatives, friends. And I said, no offense, Captain, because I remember I, I managed your little league team with your son playing, and you've got a great family. I said, but I don't want to have kids that are Army brats going all over the world. And he said, I respect that. So the next two talks were, we were just bull crapping. So anyway, when I returned home, I'm not going to go into the civilian life, but I'll, I'll tell you, when I went in the Army as a kind of a smart-ass kid, I came out as a fairly reasonable adult, but I had a sense of patriotism that I didn't know existed. And that has gone, kept with me for all these years. I was discharged in 1961, and you know, a couple days, it's going to be 2024. So that has never left me. I am proud to be an American. I have always said, you know, there's, there's three types of people. There's the sheep, and that's somebody who really is, is incapable of defending themselves or thinks the government should do it or is just in la-la land. And then there's the wolf, and that's the thugs and various other shitheads that occupy the, this planet. And then there's the sheepdog, and the sheepdog will always protect the sheep against the wolf. And I think I've been a sheepdog all my life, and as long as I'm still walking and able, I'll be a sheepdog until I die. And I'll also, uh, I mean, th this country has given so much to so many, despite some of the idiotic leaders that we've had in Washington, D.C., uh, this, this past several years, uh, I mean, it, it's it's awful. I it's not the same country that I grew up in, but we're we're gonna make it right. I mean, it's uh, you just gotta vote the idiots out of office and try and get the try and get the good guys in. 
And I, I think that besides the patriotism, it's given me a, a discipline in life where I've always, uh, I've always had a, uh, I, I would say a, a, a quick, I want to make a very quick decision on something. And, but the discipline I learned in the Army carried over to, to my civilian life and married life. I, if there's ever a critical decision to be made, I will take a couple days and weigh the pros and cons and just won't make a, a, a just a on-the-spot decision that I, I could regret. And I, owe, I think I owe that to the Army. I still, it took me two years, I think, before I could sleep on a pillow again because in the Army, it's not like the Air Force. <laughs> Air Force is like the country club, but uh, you don't have a pillow to sleep on. Um, you also, I still, every day, I keep my gig line straight, and the gig line means your belt is is perpendicular to this, your shirt buttons and to your, basically to your fly. So you, you're straight up and down. And it, it took me about a year to f try to figure out why people couldn't walk and stay in step. <laughs> because when you're walking, no matter, and when you're in the service, you're always walking in step. And for a civilian, that means if you're walking with two or three people, and your left foot's your all left foot's hitting at the same time. Your right foot's hitting at the same time. That's what in step is. But I think I owe a lot to being in the army, and I know it's not for everyone. I, the, but the service, I'm proud that I serve my country. Uh, I, I every time if I ever see someone in uniform, whether it's a, whether it's a serviceman, a fireman, or a policeman, if I'm in a restaurant, I'll buy their lunch. I, I have the ultimate respect for first responders. And I'll tell you, if things get tough, and if the, you, you have already heard, by the time you get to this podcast, you've already heard my podcast with Fred Hellman, a Vietnam vet, who just hit him severely injured in war and just had a unbelievable experience. So, yeah, um, you, you gotta you gotta respect your veterans, and and again, their main job when they enlist is they they might want to get an education and everything, but your main job is to protect the country. So with that, I think I've rambled on enough. I've been talking for about an hour and 15 minutes. I was going to try to hold this to about 45 minutes, but I, I hit a lot of interesting things. I, and I'll tell you, I hit a lot of things that weren't so interesting and were uh, 
I, I just don't want to talk about them. And may, maybe they'd be interesting, but uh, maybe I have things that I shouldn't have done. So anyway, I hope you enjoy all these veteran podcasts. And as soon as I can get Reed Meyer to commit a time and a few other ones. And by the way, since you've listened to this podcast, and I said at the beginning, free books available. All you have to do is, again, text or call me, 812-871-4224, email LarryReadyAtMac.com, or leave a comment on my Podbean page, my homepage for the podcast, and I'll take your dedication, but all you have to do is say, free books, and that's it. So anyway, I want to thank everybody for listening. And we're going to go out with the national anthem. God bless you. God bless the United States of America. And I'll talk to you on the next podcast. Thank you.